Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Every day was Saturday to me. Right. I, it wasn't a real job. So, that, you know, how many people can say that and everything? And that's all I'd done all my life was race. Hell, they didn't have titles back then. If you had a title, you was the first one out the door. You didn't want a title. <laughs> I'm making 325, 350, and I'm going to make 700. I went home. I told my wife, pack your shit. We're going, <laughs> we're, we're going to Daytona. You didn't have to have your first kid sperm count to get on an airplane, you know what I mean? Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I believe so. You are now. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly does care about NASCAR history. And Steve, let me say that again. All right. Welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Okay, Rick, tell me why you repeated that. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, I talked to Chris Powell last week, the president and general manager out there. Steve, Las Vegas is renewing its title sponsorship for our show for next year. And as they say out west, Rick, yee-haw. <laughs> That's great news. How about that, my friend? Thank you, Chris, and Las Vegas. In all honesty, Chris, thank you so much for your support, but also for your encouragement and your friendship and your belief in what we're trying to do here at the Same Vault Podcast. So, Chris... Thank you, and thank you to everybody out at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. So, listeners, if you're considering going to a race weekend, consider Las Vegas. Please do. And remember, (laughs) what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, so (laughs) feel free to do whatever you want. All right, so, Steve, you got a little culture in yesterday, didn't you? I was up in Yankinville to see SpongeBob Pants. The Broadway musical. The musical. That's right. I want to tell you something. I was highly impressed with the professionalism of that show. I enjoyed it immensely. And, Rick, I was really thrilled and impressed to see the performance of your two sons, Adam and Jesse. They were far better than I ever could imagine. You should be real proud of those boys. All right, so Steve, the performance was all well and good. The play was awesome, and I enjoyed it. But then after we left the theater, I don't know, about 30 minutes later, I get a call from my buddy, Steve Wade. Uh, Let's say I was in a state of emergency, Rick. All right, so let me set the stage. Jeannie and I are finishing up dinner with some friends of ours from church who had also come to the play, and I get a call, and outside it is raining, just buckets, okay? And you call, and you say, Rick, I've got a flat tire. That's exactly right. Here I was with a flat tire in the parking lot at the theater, raining cats and dogs, not knowing what else to do. I did dial AAA. (laughs) I did get a hold of them. But it was going to be two hours 
before they got there. And so my wife, who I freely admit is smarter than I am, said, well, call Rick. I said, I don't want to bother Rick. <laughs> she said, call Rick. <laughs> and she called you. So it's Margaret's fault, huh? That's right. Okay, so, all right, I got you. Do you know how to change a tire? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you're still at the theater, and I meet you there. It's raining. Raining. There's lightning in the distance. And you hand me the, what essentially is a lightning rod, this little metal tool that you use to jack the car up or whatever. And here I am changing your tire <laughs> in the rain. I'm about to get electrocuted. And not only that, your tire was in a big puddle of water and sitting next to a power pole. Well, <laughs> Rick, I was watching you from the shelter of your car. <laughs> me and Margaret were in there with Jeannie. And Jeannie was saying, I hope nothing happens to him. And I said, well, I don't think anything is going to happen to him, not at all. So long story longer, my buddy Jeff Henshaw shows up, and he helps me change the tire. So now I owe him a favor, and then you drove my car home. Correct. I drove yours back to our house last night, and then this morning I took it to a local tire shop and got it fixed. Got It just needed a plug. And I will not allow you to pay me cash for my services in changing the tire, and also I took care of the $20 fee for plugging the tire. Rick, I think we are even, because when I started to visit you and do this podcast, your gas tank was flat empty. No, I don't think so. Oh, I don't I think to, so. I don't I think would, so. Look, I went to a gas station <laughs> for $45 worth of gas <laughs> in your car. I think we're even, don't you? No, I do not. <laughs> this is how you're going to repay me. I got it all set up. Okay. All right, I don't want your money. I want your influence. You're a member of the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame. You're a recipient of the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. So you've got some pull in this sport. All right. For four years now, I've been trying to get a gig as a pace car driver. Oh, no. So my quest is now your quest. It is your mission in life now to get me a gig as a pace car driver wherever you can. Uh. Then... We uh, will be even. Uh, Rick, uh, here's $20. Thank you very much for <laughs> my tire. I'll say, okay, okay. I'll surrender. I'll do what I can, okay? And I will hold my breath. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, in the first of what will be three epic installments of our interview with David Ift, long time, and I mean long time NASCAR crew chief, David talks about going from shop to shop to shop in his drive to land a dream gig in the sport before finally getting hooked up with Budmore Engineering. And then after that, it was on to Die Guard Racing where he reunited with Daryl Waltrip and doubled his salary to a whopping $700 a week. Big money for those times, and not bad for right now, now that I think about it. However, because it was Diegard, a parting of the ways was almost inevitable. Well, Diegard had a revolving door at the entrance, okay? I mean, that's all there is to it. Then in our second segment, the October 26, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene, Kel Yarbrough beats the living daylights out of everybody at Rockingham and for the 1978 Winston Cup Championship 
which was his unprecedented third title in a row. LG DeWitt, Benny Parsons, and Jake Elder have themselves a little bit of a row, while young David Ift is called one of the best crew chiefs in the business in a feature story. Finally, team owner Rod Osterlin denies rumors that he is grooming phenom Dale Earnhardt to replace Dave Marcus as his driver. Which, as we all know, Rick, really happened, and we know what happened from that point on, don't we? Yes, we do. Steve, this week we did have some people step up and help out with new Patreon support. We've got new Patreon support from Michael Lingenfelter, August Severisi, and Travis Robinson, and we also have some Venmo support from Trevor Augustine. It had been a while since we got some new Patreon support, but Michael, August, and Travis, they all stepped up, and I appreciate that. Trevor, thank you for your help. Listeners, if you can, support the podcast by checking out our T-shirts over on Teespring. And as a bonus for our listeners, you can enter the promo code PODCAST at checkout for 10% off. Also, if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do so at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And Steve, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. All right, David, how did you first get into racing? Well, when I, when I was a young kid, my dad worked in the steel mills. We were raised up around Youngstown, Ohio. It was all steel mills. And a lot of people won't remember, but there used to be a guy that built sprint cars. In fact, he built a couple Indy cars, too, Floyd Travis. And people, the old racers would realize this. Well, my dad worked in the steel mills, and he would go over there and weld frames up for him, sprint car frames, two or three nights a week. And when I was 11, 12 years old, I would go with him. And then on the weekends, we'd go to the local dirt tracks, and I'm a little kid, and all these people knew my dad and everything, and I just got you know excited about what I, that. And when I was 16, I bought a dirt car, and I was too young. They wouldn't let me drive it. Actually, I was 15 and a half, worked mowing grass, doing everything, and I bought this little dirt car, and my dad was excited, so we took it to the races and that, and that's how I got into, into the racing. And I'd watch, they didn't have them on TV, just little spurts of it and everything, and I said to myself, that's right. And we went to Daytona, my dad and my his brother, my uncle and that, and we sat in the grandstands and watched that race, and I said, this was in 19... 68, 69, and I said, I'm going to be down there one day in them pits. And that's what I just wanted. That's Every day was Saturday to me. Right. I, it wasn't a real job. So, that, you know, how many people can say that and everything? And that's all I'd done all my life was race. And that's how I got picked up a magazine when I was about 18 and a half. Me and my wife, we were high school sweethearts, got married. I We moved south, and I went to... Junior Johnson's, the Petties, and they weren't going to hire nobody just driving in off the street and everything. So I went to Banjo Matthews, never even heard about Banjo Matthews. They would tell me where to go. 
went to Cecil Gordon's shop and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, Hampke, remember the guy that was racing up around Juniors at Wilkesboro? What was his name? Uh, Roger Hamby? R- Roger Hamby, yeah. yeah. Went to his shop, and he said, well, Banjo might be hiring somebody. I didn't know Banjo. He wasn't even ready. He's a car builder. Right. Went over there, and Bill Seifert was the parts guy, and, yeah. and Banjo wasn't there. And he said, well, we're not hiring or anything, but down over the mountain— that was before Interstate 26 was built, 19, and he said, go down over the mountain, over Salute, and Bud Moore's hiring. Well, he was racing the Trans Am cars then, the, with Parnelli Jones, George Foreman, the last year of that. And I went down there, and there was a guy named Jim Fox. He was working for Ford. He was the PR guy. Bud was Ford factory back, and he went there and he said what can you do and i said well i can you show me what to do it don't take me long to learn and i can weld and everything and he said when can you start and i said well give me a week and i went home and loaded all my crap me and my wife two kids and high chair strapped to the roof of a 65 buick lesabra and headed back to spartanburg so and i worked for bud like probably four and a half years and learn everything and work my way up the ladder. And that was really my first job with in NASCAR racing. And, you know, there was people back then that really, like Red Myler, Kenny Myler, yeah. and uh, Ducky Newman, the motor man, right. and all that, that r- really, and there was about 20, 25 people there. And then when, they, when the Trans Am Series quit that year, Bud went back cup racing, and he only was racing – eight or ten a year. Pearson drove it a couple times and different people. And they started designing that 351 Cleveland motor right in Spartanburg. Now, I know Ford built it and everything, but that motor was designed and built by Bud Moore's engineering out of Spartanburg, South Carolina. They cut the sooner heads, made runners, divided everything. And I learned to TIG weld because you had to weld all them aluminum heads up and everything and i can remember bud he chewed that tobacco all the time you remember <laughs> spit that tobacco out and he would stand over you and say get it on and it's bud let me do this you know what i mean and, <laughs> but you go to the racetrack and and he was uh he started baker drove it uh with the rc cola car yeah and before that bobby isaac drove when Harry Hyde and them were in dispute with NASCAR and Isaac left the Kane Dodge, he drove it that year with with a sponsor on it, State Power. I don't even I never seen a can of State Power or anything the whole I don't know what it was, but worked worked there for three, four four and a half years and, and uh when Isaac retired in Talladega, you'd remember this way, when yeah. he got out of the car and I think the reason was they had a caution, and everybody just pitted. And it was Larry Smith. He got killed going into turn three, and right. they ne- they never stopped the races back then. They they rode them around. If they had to ride them through the infield, that's what they'd done. They didn't throw no red flag. You went around on a caution. And he must have been going by when they took him down off the bank or whatever, and, and everybody's pitted, and this – he come on the rail. That was the first three or four races that they had radios. And he come on the rail and said, Bud, you got to get somebody driving. Bud didn't. He looked, he said, well, 
well, are you sick or what? He said, no, somebody told me to get out of this car. And we just pitted, and I see Bud, you know, he was from the old school, and he, he's looking around to see if one of the pit guys got in the car with him. And I, I said, you know what I mean? And he said, no, somebody get out. And he says, so the only guy that was out of the race was Cuckoo Marlin. And we were developing that small block motor, which everybody went to, the Ford guys. We blowed up. We raced 19 races that year and blowed up about 17 of them. And, but Cuckoo come. I had to run down there and get Cuckoo Marlin and bring him up there. He got in the car and drove it, and it finished. And we ended up fourth. First race, we finished about 10 races. So on the way home... We had this here, uh, but I'm riding with Bud in his Lincoln Continental that Ford would give him to drive every year. He'd take that window down and spit that to back out the window and it all down the side of the car. And that was my job Monday morning. Pressure wash that left side of the car. If you didn't have to do the right side, just the left side. <laughs> but uh, it ended up, who's going to drive the race car? And... What happened, when the beginning of the year, that year, we went to Atlanta. Atlanta was about the second or third race. And we went down there, and everything rained out. And I'll never forget this. Lynn Kukler was the guy. Not Bill Gathaway, Dick Bader. Lynn Kukler was the guy back then, the head of NASCAR in the, with the competitors. I, we were sitting in the driver's meeting, me and Bud, and I would have been like the car chief nowadays you know but they hell they didn't have titles back then if you had a title use the first one out the door you didn't want a title <laughs> <laughs> so he he said we're gonna start the first 25 by points and the rest of them you'll fill in well some young kid stood up in the back he said that means i start 26 i turned around and looked and it was daryl walter and I thought to myself, boy, that's a mouthy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and they said, Lane Cooper said, sit down, son. We'll tell you where you start. And he says, well, why can't I start 26? I said, sit down, son. He sat down, and I thought to myself, man, he got a lot of balls. <laughs> you know, cause, you, you, know yeah. you didn't want to get called in that trailer, I could tell you that. <laughs> but anyway, I kind of watched Daryl. I said, if he, if he's that mouthy, he's got to be crazy, you know. That's right. So I watched him, and he started, I don't know, 30th, 28th, wherever he started. And here he come up there. I watched on our car with the bakers in it, and he comes up through there, and he's running about fourth or fifth. I said, this kid's running. He went on the apron, hit the apron, lost it, and crashed, you know. That's the first time I noticed him. So the next race uh, he come to, they only run about five races. He was running the 17 car that Stevie's father-in-law owned terminal transport trucking out of Atlanta. Right. And he, that's how he put the money into it. And they had Robert G. Jake was setting them up. They was guys that they would just pick up every, every race. And they only run about five or six. The next race I seen him was at Texas, the old speedway college station. Right. He was out there running and he was qualified 12, 15. And he come up there, he runs second, third, fourth. And they were on a caution and somehow or other, somebody bumped into him on the caution and 
knocked him out of the race or something, and, and he dropped out. But he would, and I watched him for about three or four races. Well, back to when we were going home, when Isaac got out of the race car, Bud, I'm sitting over there, and he's moaning and groaning. Damn, we got a sponsor. I got to call him tomorrow. I got to call Lee Morris and tell him, you know, well, back in the sh- I I just rattled off. I said, why don't you put that Daryl Walter up in that car? I didn't even know Daryl, nothing, but I seen one. He looked over at me and said, who? And I said, that kid that drives that 17 car, he goes fast. But I tell you, they, a lot of people didn't realize, Richard Petty or none of them, or Junior, none of them, we went to Nashville and raced. When he was in that 17 car. That was one of race one. He qualified on the pole. He lapped everybody but the first two cars. That was Kale in the Holly Farms car, and I think it was uh, Petty in the, his car. But then he blowed up halfway through or something, and nobody remembers it. That you know, if you didn't win, they they don't remember the first half of the race. Yeah. But that's how good he was at Nashville in short track racing, and he got good anyway. All the guys in the shop, who's going to drive the car? Who's a, Am I going too long on no. this story? <laughs> who's who's going to drive the car? All the guys in the shop asking me because I was with Bud riding home. And I said, hey, I don't know who's going to drive it. And Wednesday morning, we're getting ready to leave for Richmond the next day. we got to leave Thursday afternoon to go to Richmond, be there Friday morning. The next, Wednesday morning, here comes Bud, Lee Morris, Come walking back in the shop with Daryl Walter, and we had to fit fit the seat for him and everything, and and uh, I never forget they had these old Dodge van seats and with a side on it, aluminum side that we had to built in a padding. That's what Isaac had in them, and uh, Daryl got in that car and he's he said, "Bud, can I bring my own seat?" Because he had. A, like a short track seat, wraparound seat that he was comfortable in. And Bud said, ah, Ford Motor Company spent millions of dollars designing that seat. A chiropractor designed that seat, and you're going to drive it. And <laughs> Daryl Shutter, because this is his first time, big time ride, you know, Ford factory back ride. Well, there's only five races left. And we went to Richmond, and you remember when they had the big fire on the front straightaway yeah. and Lenny Pond and all them yeah. that burnt half the car? Well, Daryl caused that wreck. He, 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 we qualified fourth, and he went into turn. He's going to win it the first lap. And he took somebody out, and they all wrecked all on the front straightaway the first lap. Never even took the flag, half of them. You remember that. Oh, yeah. And anyway, then we go to Darlington. And he scraped the wall four or five times every ten laps. He's coming in, pulling the fenders off of it and everything. And but I got to know him real good. And when we went to Atlanta, and that was the last race he was going to run because there's only five left. And they used Atlanta was the last race back then. And uh, he told me he says Bud would on it. He'd be on him in on the radio. He, Daryl said, David, I'd give you $50 if you don't plug that radio in. <laughs> I, I said, I can't do that. I'll get fired. <laughs> so anyway, we, we run, and me and Daryl got to be friends. And when we'd see him, then he'd race. He started racing the next season, only two or three, you know, because they didn't have the money to do it. And he would always come over and talk to me. What what do they, what do you got for Springs? What do you guys? And I'd kind of help him out a little bit and everything. And, and 
when he got the die guard ride in the middle of the season, Donnie Allison was driving it, and Daryl got the die guard ride, and he called me, and he said, David, come and be my crew chief down there, Florida. Well, I wasn't leaving. I just bought a house in Spartanburg, and I've been with Bud for and every year. You know, and Bud was low and everything. But I was making, you made $3.25 an hour, and I worked all the hours I could work. If we got back Sunday night at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was in there Monday morning. I had to, you know, but, you know, loaf of bread was only 19 cents back then, too. But I take home about $300, $350, and that's in 1977. That's pretty good money. Yeah. Because I rented an apartment, and I can remember, brand new, two-bedroom apartment. It was $168 for an apartment. And uh, we would, Daryl said, they're coming out. I can get you $700 a week. $700 a week. We're ma- I'm making $325, $350, and I'm going to make $700. I-, I went home. I told my wife, pack your shit. We're going, <laughs> we're going to Daytona because that's, that's where the shop was, Die Guard yeah, Shop. Yeah, shop yeah. at first, Mario Rossi run it. And anyway, I went down there and I'm with Daryl Scrooge. And we, and he brought the Gatorade sponsor. And how he got that sponsor, his father-in-law, what was his name, Frank Rader. Yeah. Frank, he owned Terminal Transport Trucking Company. He, Stokely Van Camp, Owns Gatorade at first, right? And his trucks hauled the out of the pork and beans and everything out of Stokely Van Camps. So Daryl got in there to get that Gatorade sponsor, and that's they hauled Gatorade and that, and, that, and he took that sponsor to Bill Gardner and, that, right. and got in that car, and then it become the '88 car. It was '88, but with the green on it and everything, and then you know that was went on from there, and we'd win four, five, six a year for, and I hired like Buddy Parrott. Gary Nelson, you know, I had Gary Nelson when he was 18, 19 years old. He was Ivan Baldwin's guy out in California. That's right. And he was 18, 19, and he wanted to come back to racing. And I says, well, everything he owned was in one of them brown bags and a little (laughs) suitcase. And he got in the truck and rode back with whoever the truck driver was. Back then, two guys would drive the truck out to California. Nobody flew. Everybody drove. And then the other guys would come in a van, or if they did fly, they would change plane tickets, and two other guys would drive it back. You didn't have to have your first kid's sperm count to get on an airplane. You know what I mean? Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> you are now. <laughs> but now, back then, you just traded tickets. This is in the early 70s yeah. and that. And you, you didn't matter what name was on. As long as you had a ticket, they never looked at names. They That's just right. got on and went. And we'd switch around. And and uh, so we worked that Gatorade car, but we had good people. We had that Buddy Parrott come, and I taught Buddy Parrott how to set a front end, and Gary Nelson come. And Gary Gary was Ivan Ball, and Ivan Ball was a heck of a car builder out there out west, and he learned everything. He He was really good. And we were down there. The first year we went down there to Die Guard, we, we, Mario Rossi was there doing the motors. Now, we had horsepower, but we blowed up, blowed up. And finally, Bill Garner said, what do we got to do here? And I said, and I probably spoke out of turn, but I said, we need to get some motors that will go 500 miles. Hell with all this horsepower. You, you know, I was always the type of crew chief 
you give me something, I don't care if it's 10 horsepower off, it might be different now, and it probably is different, but you give me something that'll go 500 miles, I'll make it handle. And that's where we, my expertise was making race cars handle, and we we always run good. And I always had, you take a, like I was telling you guys earlier, there's four variables in racing. You got the motor, the chassis, people around you, and the driver. When you got Kale Yarbrough, Daryl Waltrip, guys like that, Benny Parsons, now you got three variables. So if you put people like Buddy Parrott, Barry Dotson, and them guys around you, now you got two variables, and that's all you got to worry about. Right. So that's what made me, because I put good people around me, and I was fortunate to have good drivers. And Daryl and us went on and on. I mean, we had our arguments and everything, and <laughs> you know, it, it, but it always, I knew that. He was going to give 100% or 110% when he went out there what, what was right or wrong, yeah, you know. Well, tell me about a good argument with Darrell Walter. What, he wanted to – I think it was over a gear one time. He, want, he wanted to – we was at Martinsville, that's right. And we was at Martinsville, and most people run a 633 gear and, a, you know, 620 right around there. And I said, you know, Daryl, when these tires get hot, you're going to go, you know, you can't use the power you got. You start spinning the wheels. Why don't we take gear out of it, like putting a rev lever in it? So we, I went down to a 600, and he said, that ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. And anyway, we won the race. <laughs> but the, the good one is same place in Martinsville. They first come with disc brakes. Hearst Earhart made them, them calipers, and they weren't proven yet. They 500 miles, that was the biggest thing at Martinsville, and Daryl was right. good at Martinsville. So we had to build a car that would finish. If we finished, we won. He, They had come with these disc brakes. Richie Panch, Marvin, Marvin Panch was the at Ray Bestus guy at the track, and they would arc the brakes, the old drum, drum brakes and everything. So they come with these disc brakes. He done all the testing for these disc brakes. We never run them yet. Short track coming up, everybody's got them on. Richard Petty Jr. with Kale and the Holly Farms car, they all got these disc brakes on. I come with the drum brakes because I knew I could finish the race. When we got there, Daryl was, he was hot. He said, everybody's got the modern day. David, you're old. You can't keep up with what's going on. And shit, we got in Well, we always qualified first, second, third or something. We qualified back there sixth or something, and he was pissed off after that and everything. I'm still fighting with him, arguing him and everything. And I said, Daryl, these, these things ain't proven yet. Last practice on Saturday, he's out there trying to keep up with these guys with disc brakes. They're driving down in there, stopping. He goes in, he loses it, boom, backs it in the wall. Now, it, it, back then, it just caved the back end down. He comes down pit row, shit dragging and everything. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about to run and hide. <laughs> but anyway, he gets out of that car. Stevie was over there by the toolbox and wife, and I'm standing over there. I figure if I stand next to her, he, he ain't going to hit me in front of her. <laughs> so he gets out, and he, got a, he throws that damn can at the toolbox like he's pissed off, and he 
almost hit Stevie with it. This can of Coke and I, or yeah. whatever it was. And I thought, oh, shit. So we fixed the car and everything hit. They go back to the motel. And we, we fixed the car and everything. And we start the race. We're going along and they're dropping out. They're halfway through. They're dropping out. No brakes, no brakes. And we go on and, hell, we got like two laps on the field. All of them dropped out. We win the race. After the race, I didn't even go to victory lane. I just walked off. <laughs> but Daryl, that's about the biggest argument we had. They seemed like there was always something going on at Die Guard. Di- always. always. Well, what was your relationship with the Gardeners? Well, Bill, never. he showed up at the racetrack and everything. We had a... Robert Yates was the motor man. Yeah. And how Robert Yates, the first part, when they got Robert come, Robert worked for Junior Johnson. And then he left Junior because he didn't want to be up in the mountains or something. And he went to work for Parky Nall. Do you remember yeah. him? Oh, yeah. Parky Nall. He worked for him about four or five months. And I and me and Daryl, we, we would leave down there in Florida, and we would come up and work out of Robert G's shop. Which is Little Lee's grandpa, and Dale married his daughter Brenda, which is that's Little Lee's mama. But everybody knew every, we would come up and go, come for three races, and we'd bring the gears and everything, and work out of his shop. So Daryl said, "Man, we got to get a motor builder." And I said, "Well, Robert just is over there at Parky Knolls. Let's go over and talk to him." So we went and had some beers and crap, and we got Robert a few beers and everything, and. We talked to Robert, and I said, me and Daryl said, how about coming down to Daytona and going to work for And I didn't care what they offered him. If it was a 1000 more than I made, I didn't care. We needed motors. And anyway, he said, only he said, I'm not coming with Rossi there. I don't want to step on his toes. And he, Well, Daryl said, well, he's going to be gone. Because Daryl brought the sponsor, and he had a little bit of pool, you, you know what I mean, who he could – Get and that's the way it was back then, Steve. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you brought the sponsor, and so Robert comes to work for us, and Rossi's gone. Well, he come down there, and he stayed in a motel down there until we got. And we knew we needed to be out of Daytona, but Gardner bought the, moved that team. He went to the Daytona Five Hundred and watched the race, and said, "I need, I'm going to have one of these race teams." Well, he went over across the street, Ventress Boulevard, and bought a building, and started a race team. Hadn't, didn't have a clue, you know. But he was the first guy to come in to racing that didn't make his living racing. Right. You know, you had the Woods Brothers, Bud Moore, Junie Donlevy, Junior John. Them guys made their living racing. Gardner come in, he he was the first guy that didn't, you know, make, make his living racing. So, anyway, we got Robert, but it talked back to the question – Gardner didn't show up only at the race day. Well, but we finally talked him in to moving it to Charlotte, and we did. We found a building, me and Daryl and Robert, and we moved it to Charlotte in U-Haul trucks. And the first motor that they built up there, it was never dynoed or nothing. We didn't have a dyno or nothing in up there yet. It, Lee Willard had a little machine shop down on Charlotte's one of them back roads in Charlotte. We took that equipment up there and moved it in his little machine shop. And Robert, they had cords laying all over the floor, plugged in, 
wires taped together to run the CK-10 and all that. And they built that motor, Robert and Lee and William and them, and Ducky Newman. I got Ducky to come down there from Bud Moore's. He left Bud, so we had two real good motormans, and Ducky was a type. He just wanted to stay at the shop and build motors. And they built that motor. We went to Darlington and won the race, the Rebel 400. With a motor that was built, never dynoed nothing. They we put it in the car, warmed it up, took the valve covers off. They retorqued the heads in the car, and then we went loaded and went to the race and won the race. And Gardner was happy that we moved to that, but you didn't see Bill much. And about two years before I left, he he sent his brother down there, Jim Gardner, mm-hmm. to kind of run the place. Well, when you're somewhere for three years, me and Robert and Daryl, and we're running the deal, all of us, because we always work together. And somebody steps in, and what? Got, of course, they're both. I think Jim died, didn't he? Yeah. And is is Bill still living? Yeah. Well, that I, Jim, I got home from Talladega. We raced about five races in a row. I was burnt out. And we raced about five races in a row, and so were the guys that went to the racetrack. And you worked seven days a week, and, you know, it was there was no hours and that. But we left. We won Talladega, and we went home. And we didn't have a race the next weekend. I told all the guys, take off Monday. It, it, at ten, and I get home about 2 or 3 in the morning or 5 in the morning, and I go to bed, and the, my wife says, Jim Garner's on the phone. And what the hell does he want? Dude? You know, he... He says, where's everybody at? They called, and I said, well, I give them off. And he says, well, that's not your job to give the people off. After you've been there three and a half years and, you know, running the place, and I didn't, and I was just in a bad mood, and this guy been sending his PR guy for three months. Johnny Cole was his name, and his the guy that he, that went MC Anderson. He, I didn't ever, never knew MC Anders. He owned a big construction company in Savannah. And Johnny Cole, they were running. Sam Summers mm-hmm. was driving the 27 car, blue car and white. And Johnny Cole kept telling me, Mr. Anderson, like to talk to you, talk to you. I was 27, 28 years old or 30 maybe. And, and he said, he'd like to talk to you. Well, at that time, it just hit the wrong <laughs> number and, and, uh, I'll, I'll never forget, but I said, well, 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 they'll all be in there tomorrow. So I went in the next day and everything, and I, I called Johnny Cole, and I said, tell Mr. Anderson I'll, I'd like to talk. I'll come down and talk to him. And he said, well, he'll send his plane after you. You know what I mean? And that's, he had a King Air 200 or whatever the hell it was. And uh, I said, no, nah, I'll just drive down. because you know." So me, I got in the car, and I drove down there and went in his office and met him and everything. And he he laid out the plan, what he wanted to do, and how would I do it. And he had Sam Summers, and they were running for Rookie of the Year, and they only run like 10. I think back then, if they took the best 15 races. Well, he was only going to run 15 anyway. If he won it, he won it. But I went to work for him, and I went back, and I told Jim Gardner, I'm Bill Jim. I said, I'm done. I'm leaving. And I loaded my – and Daryl called me, man, don't leave. Robert, don't. And and I said, 
it, well, there was another thing. To, some tire bills weren't getting paid, and something was happening. And I kind of seen it and everything. And But I, I left and went to work for M.C. Anderson. Now, Daryl Derringer had been with he the, with, He come with in there Nygaard. when I was there, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and That Darryl, evidently didn't sit too well with you. Well, when Daryl come, Daryl was making it. Making everybody, he was lining up all the motel rooms who you had to stay with and and everything like that. And you know, we just let the guys stay who the hell they wanted to stay with and everything. It got more. You had more chiefs than you did workers. <laughs> and you know, you had yeah. Jim Gardner there. Yeah. You had Daryl. They weren't getting dirty, building gears and building fenders and bolting motors on the dyno. You know. They, they had more chiefs than you had. And, you know, when you're doing something for three and a half years and you're successful at it and winning races, yeah. wh- why do you want to change stuff? And it just got too overwhelming for me. So if it ain't broke, don't fix that, it. That's the way I always <laughs> looked at it, you know. But uh, we, well, I had a good time. Daryl Waltrip, we come up together. He was nothing, I was nothing. He compensated me, I compensated him. And all he done for racing what Muhammad Ali done for boxing. Nothing against them all, but David Pearson, Kelly, they couldn't talk in front of that camera. When Daryl got come to racing, he could run his mouth. And he always told me, David, you need to talk like the man on the 5 o'clock news. That's what yeah, he told me. A lot of people said that. Yep. Yeah. And, and Daryl... That camera was going to go on him, whether he was in the race or blowed up out of the race, because he could talk, and that's what the news or the TV wanted—somebody that was good at it. And and Daryl was good at it. That, he he in the right in the air that he done. He was the first one, like the Rusty Wallaces, the Jeff Gordons that come in that could do it. But he was there ten years before them. And, right. you know, you only had, you had uh, Harry Gant didn't want to, he didn't care nothing about TV. Cale didn't, you know, Pearson, he was shy and everything. He didn't want on interviewed. And, you know, Petty, he was about the one that could talk a little bit. But but when Daryl come, he was he was good. And then you had Ricky Rudd come and guys like that that started coming into the race. And this was in the mid-'70s, late-'70s. And that's what, uh, but Daryl, Daryl done what Muhammad Ali done for boxing. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. David Ift has this dream of working in NASCAR, so he moves far away from his home in Ohio, and he moves to the Carolinas to see if he can find a job in the sport. That story sounds kind of familiar. No, do you think? <laughs> How many of our guests have we had on this show got into racing because they loved it and they went and tried to find a job in it, starting at the entry levels? I'm not talking about all those yahoos. <laughs> I'm talking about me. No. <laughs> <laughs> David moved from Ohio. I moved from Nashville, Tennessee. David started knocking on doors and didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Yep, same here. <laughs> Sorry that I forgot, Rick. Good. Yeah, nice. okay, okay, all right. That's fine, that's fine. Then David goes to Banjo Matthews' shop, and Banjo wasn't hiring at the time, but his parts manager, Bill Seifert, tells him that Bud Moore might have an opening, and 
Personally, I go to North Wilkesboro, and Jerry Langford tells me that the Allegheny News needs a sports editor. I had never made the connection between Larry Smith getting in a fatal accident at Talladega and Bobby Isaac getting out of Bud's car later in that same race. And then afterward, David's riding home with Bud in the Lincoln Continental that he has been provided by Ford. Bud evidently chewed chewing tobacco, (laughs) and he spit it out the window, and then David had to clean it all off the side of the car as the new guy. Now, that's what you really call an entry-level position, clean tobacco off a car. (laughs) That is definitely a job for the new guy. I mean, if I've got the choice between cleaning tobacco spit off the side of a car or being asked to go pick up my boss's daughter's art project, yeah, I'm looking at you, Steve Wade. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking the art project. So how is old Absalom, by the way? Oh, doing fine. Absalom is a dragon built entirely from car parts or car-related parts. For example, his wings are quarter panels, his body is a muffler, his legs are shock absorbers, and his head is a nozzle from a gas pump. Now, my daughter was required to build something like that in her design class to be an architect. She had to do other things, like build a chair out of cardboard that could hold the weight of a 300-pound man. Stuff like that. And that's the kind of stuff she did all the time. Now, Absalom was her crowning project. He guarded our house for over 20 years. And now he's in her house, in the yard, guarding that place. So when I first started at scene, you needed Absalom moved. Correct. And so you lined me up to go get Absalom and move him to your yeah, house or yeah, wherever there, we were going. method in my madness. Okay, all right, all right. I knew back then you were trying to collect every issue of scene. So to help you with that, I gave you money to get the job done. I gave you food money. And I gave you gas money, and you drove from Charlotte to Raleigh to get the job done, and you did. That was a new guy job. That was 19-whatever-it-was. Well, this is 2022, 32 years later, and I'm still changing your freaking tire. (laughs) (laughs) And you won't let me pay you for it. (laughs) But back to David's story. He and Bud are riding home, and Bud is trying to figure out who he can get to put in the car. And David's been watching this kid by the name of Daryl Walter. So why not Daryl? We have David if to thank or blame for Daryl Walter's career. (laughs) But it wasn't a bad suggestion on his part. At the time, Daryl was starting to make some noise, really racing for his own teams. And it turned out that when he moved over to Bud Moore, this was not only, I think, a good move for his career, but it did get him a lot of notice in the media because the media wanted to know what Bud saw in this guy. Daryl got to ride for five races, and he qualifies like Jack the Bear, but his finishes don't exactly set the world on fire. <laughs> Let me, I'll take that one back. At Richmond that fall, he set the whole dang front stretch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> the finishes weren't there. The qualifying efforts most definitely were. And it's the very first time that Daryl ever drove for an established team. In his five races for Bud, he started fourth, second, eighth, sixth, and eighth. That got him some attention, and it was one more step forward in his progression. Well, I agree completely. I kind of wonder what Daryl might have done had he not 
gotten a Bud Moore ride. Let's face it, the finishes weren't great, but he turned that car into a great qualifying machine. And that, too, will get you noticed. Darrell eventually went to Die Guard, and he calls David and wants him to be his crew chief. And David was like, I'm good at Bud's. This is a great job. Bud's very loyal to his people. His people are very loyal to him. David was getting $3.25 an hour. That's also Bud Moore, by the way. And he was bringing home $325 to $350 a week. You do that math. He just bought a house in Spartanburg, so he is all set. He's good to go. Daryl said, I can get you $700 a week. Uh-oh. <laughs> a week, Steve. Not a month. I a should. week. David responds by heading home and telling his wife, pack it up, baby. We are going to Daytona, <laughs> which was where the die guard shop was at the time. Steve, what did you think of David's statement that there are four variables in racing? The motor, sorry, Deb Williams, the engine, the chassis, the people, and the driver. I think that's the right form, but I do believe that you're about to tell us there was something missing. There's one variable that is not on that list, and I'm going to go on the record and say that it's probably the most important factor, and that factor is money. Correct. If the money's not there, you're not going to have the engine, you're not going to have the chassis, you're not going to have the people, or the driver. Well said, Rick, and I will say this. Everybody in racing, I think, will agree with you 100%. Money makes the difference. David told us the story of how he and Daryl had this big disagreement over what kind of brakes to run at Martinsville in the spring of 1976. And Steve, they had evidently a great relationship. So it wasn't like they were at odds all the time, like sometimes happened. But this was the one disagreement that David could remember them having. Well, I think that anybody can get along with David Ed. Let's be honest about that. He's got that kind of personality. Now, Daryl. That's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> but if Daryl likes you and what you're doing for him, he can be your absolute best friend. This was David's very first win as a crew chief, and it was just the third of the 84 wins that DW would collect in his career. And those 84 wins put him one win behind Bobby Allison on the all-time win list. Did you see what I did there? Yes, I did. Listeners never disagree with my man Rick about Bobby Allison having 85 wins. To him, is written in stone. You know what? If I was a full-time pace car driver at some track somewhere, I would trade that gig for Bobby Allison getting credit officially for 85 wins. That's how strongly I feel about that. Well, I see what you mean, Rick. And when you're willing to give up any career as a pace car driver, for Bobby Allison to be officially Listed with 85 wins. My man, your heart is really in it. <laughs> According to David, sticking with the old drum style brakes was his idea. But wait. <laughs> wait, Steve. According to a feature on David that I wrote in the February 20th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup Scene, Daryl Waltrip insisted that he was responsible for running the old drum brakes at Martinsville. Oh, we have a disagreement, huh? We have a disagreement. See what this archive can do for people? <laughs> <laughs> Daryl said in that story, he's telling this story all wrong. They came out with the new disc brakes. We got them, and we put them on the car to go to Riverside. We make a pit stop. Of course, Ift 
A bull in the china shop, he throws the wheel up on the right front and breaks the bleeder screw off. I leave the pits, go up through the S's, get up to turn six, and I say, the brakes feel a little spongy. David comes back and says, oh, they'll cool off. I go down into turn seven. And I never even slow down. I just go off the track and over the guardrail. <laughs> and there I sit, no brakes. <laughs> well, at this point, it looks like Daryl's case is pretty good. After that, it was on to Martinsville. And again, DW said, I said, I ain't running those disc brakes at Martinsville. They haven't been proven. I've got some old drum brakes here I got from Holman Moody. I'm going to put those on the car. He said, you're making a big mistake. You can't do that. We won the race because we had brakes and nobody else did. No, bull. David Ift ain't never had a good idea. Good grief. (laughs) I'm not sure I would say that David Ift never had a great idea. Oh, but wait. DW was on a roll. Daryl continued, when the race was over with, I'd go in and change clothes. My underwear would be all hot and sweaty. Oh, no. Only the best in motorsports journalism here on the Scene Vault Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) My underwear would be all hot and sweaty, so I'd just throw them down in the floor or in the trash can. My old socks would be wet and stinky. Uh. Time went by, and I said, what in the world happens to all my underwear and socks anyway? David Ift, he picked up my socks and underwear. He'd take them home, his wife would wash them, and he would wear them. <laughs> Ask him where he gets all his socks and underwear. Now, wait just a minute. Didn't we establish that David was making $700 a week? Uh, yes. Now, why does he have to use recycled underwear? What's going on? I don't know. But that's one motorsports artifact that we do not need no. here in the Scene Vault Podcast, no, NASCAR Technical Institute there might Studio. <laughs> Daryl won at Talladega in the spring of 1977 with some help from the pits. Daryl continued, we were at Talladega, and you never lead on the last lap. No, back then you didn't. That was an absolute no-no. David Ift and Buddy Parrott, they were like two peas in a pod. They're wearing me out with 10 laps to go. They're telling me, get in third place, get in fourth place. What are you doing? One would get on me, and then the other would get on me. <laughs> I said, shut up. <laughs> shut up and leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. They'd come back, you stupid blankety blank. <laughs> Finally, the story is, I won the race. They just wore me out the last 10 laps of that race about how I didn't know what I was doing. I was going to get my butt beat. Well, you kind of wonder what they were thinking. I know they were trying to encourage Daryl to be in the right place at the right time when the last lap started. That's when you could make that old good old slingshot pass that they can't do anymore. But there is overkill, and I agree with Daryl on this one. If I had Buddy and David Hollering in my ears when I was trying to race to the finish, I'd go crazy too. I believe that radio would be out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Talladega. Daryl won the race, but it was the seventh weekend in a row on the road. The crew had been working basically 24-7, and after driving all the way back from Talladega Sunday night, David tells everybody to take Monday morning off. Jim Gardner who was the team president, called David Monday morning 
And he said, where is everybody? And David says, I told them they could come in late. To which Jim replied, that's not your job. That's my job. Oh. That went over great with David Eft. And all of a sudden, he starts considering the job offer from M.C. Anderson. Well, there is a situation here. Bill Gardner was easily the most outgoing and the most familiar of the Gardner brothers who owned Dygard. Jim was sort of a distant, mercurial guy. There wasn't all that much interest in him in the press at all because they didn't see much of him. But behind the doors at Dygard, he had to be something that was more difficult to deal with than his brother Bill. I don't think Bill would have chastised David one bit for letting the crew off on a Monday. Let's put it this way. If David Ift was excited about going from $325 a week to $700 a week, just wait until you hear what he got from M.C. Anderson. Bells and cash registers going off, my man. Cha-ching! <laughs> <laughs> Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by our friends at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. And Steve, the October 26, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene, you might want to reach up and give those harnesses another tug. <laughs> <laughs> Wade is about to get ugly. <laughs> oh, is it ever? Just a little past the halfway point at Rockingham, Hell Yarbrough had already lapped the field. Unbelievable. I can just see social media. Oh, man. Halfway through Rockingham, Kell's already lapped the entire field. Halfway through Rockingham, I'm up at the press box watching fans leave. <laughs> Bobby Allison eventually finished second, two laps down. Daryl Waltrip was third, four laps back. Benny Parsons was six laps down in fourth place. And Dick Brooks was fifth, also six laps back. The crowd of 47,000 started filing out of the stands with about a third of the race still remaining. And when the race is over, that crowd stood at 4,700. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't just Rockingham that Kell dominated in 1978. The Rockingham victory was his 10th of the year, and he clinched his third straight Winston Cup championship that day with another two races remaining on the 1978 
Winston Cup schedule. This sort of thing didn't happen often in NASCAR, but it did happen. And I can tell you right now, fans would really grouse about a championship being decided one or two races before the end of the season. I know where you're trying to go with that. I'm telling you what they said. Okay, all right. You talk about social media. (laughs) Some people may look at the fact that Kel clinched the championship that year with two races to go and use that as proof that the playoffs are a good idea. Kel eventually claimed the championship in 1978 by 474 points over runner-up Bobby Allison. With that being said, Bobby Allison, Daryl Walter, Benny Parsons, and Dave Marcus, second through fifth place in the standings, they were separated by just 32 points. Now, that was more of a championship chase. Too bad the champion had already been declared. 32 points, Steve. Take Kel out of the equation, and that is one of the most epic point battles in the history of of NASCAR. So take the playoffs and shove them. Never mind. <laughs> but Rick, you got to remember that Never mind. close championship battle you're talking about was among guys who had no chance at winning the championship. There is a difference. <sighs> All right. That's fine. Okay. All right. Have it your way. <laughs> Benny Parsons drove a Chevrolet owned by LG DeWitt to a fourth place finish at Rockingham a track that was owned by L.G. DeWitt. BP qualified 12th, and in L.G. DeWitt's world, that was not good enough. He was quoted by Gene Granger as telling the crew, if you can't do better than that, just take the car back to the garage and leave it there. Oh, boy, that's strong. <laughs> do you remember who Benny's crew chief was at the time? I do. That would be Jake Elder. And how well do you think that old Jake responded to a statement like that? <laughs> I can tell you how well. Not well at all. <laughs> totally PO'd. There was a Union 76 banquet Thursday night before the race, and the team was being honored for winning the pit crew race at Rockingham earlier in the year. Jake refused to go to this banquet. I'm not surprised. And he said, after what LG did, I wouldn't have gone for $5,000. Now, I don't understand LG in this situation. He's grousing about not qualifying better than 12, okay? Now, at the same time, this pit crew of his just won last year's pit crew championship. They're going to be honored for it. And Benny did come home in the top five after all. So I don't understand his real thinking here. Well, LG stood right up in front of God and everybody at this banquet And he said that Jake apparently resented criticism and that if he wasn't man enough to take it, he shouldn't be on the team. This is a statement at a banquet where nothing ever happens. I don't understand. (laughs) I know, I know. Like I said, Rick, I don't understand LG's thinking. Here's a question I have. I never met LG, but from what everybody has ever told me, he was a fairly mild-mannered person. He, He didn't get into a lot of stuff like this. So how upset was he that he would go so far out on a limb and talk about his crew like this? He must have been really, really, really upset. Well, you have to understand that LG, while being a mild-mannered person, is still a businessman. 
And that means there are a lot of challenges going on. You know, keep a business floating. Now, he's also a team owner. And I'm not sure that LG really liked the position his team was in because there's never a team at the highest level because they did not enjoy the massive sponsorship it took to get there. Remember we talked about this earlier. Money means everything. LG might have been kind of upset with the way things were going, and it just spilled over. We've said it before here on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll say it again. Junior Johnson did not like getting embarrassed in his backyard at North Wilkesboro, and I'm going to have to think, based off of this story, that LG DeWitt didn't like getting out qualified that badly in his backyard at a track he owned. Well, I think that has something to do with it. But at the end of the day, Benny still finished among the top five in the race, and Kale just beat everybody. So what's the problem? LG said later, it was embarrassing to me to qualify as badly as we did on our track. A lot of my friends were calling and were asking what happened. I didn't have the answer, and I couldn't get a good one from my team. That's when I told them if they couldn't do any better to park the car. Benny was at this banquet, and he was probably hiding under a table somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Benny said, I knew Mr. DeWitt was mad, and I didn't want to hear it. I know Mr. DeWitt has been frustrated for the past several weeks. We've lost our sponsor for next year. We haven't won lately, and then we come here to the track and qualify poorly. But if he wants to blame anyone, he should blame me. I'm responsible for the performance of the team. Well, that sounds just like Benny taking the responsibility for everything when everything is not his responsibility. The crazy thing to me is that Benny, by most standards, had not had a bad year. He had won three races that year, but he hadn't gone to victory lane since winning at Riverside in June. And Benny continued, look at Richard Petty. He hasn't won since July of last year. But you don't see anyone over there on his team raising hell, do you? They're just trying to work their problems out. When something like that happens, especially that late in the year, it doesn't bode well for (laughs) that relationship to continue. No. Benny joined David Ift at MC Anderson Racing the following season in 1979, while Jake headed over to Rosterland Racing to head up rookie Dale Earnhardt's program. Yeah, the natural results of LG's frustration. Those guys just weren't going to stick around in that kind of situation. There was a fairly short feature story in this issue on David Ift, and in this story, David talked about everybody on the team from the driver on down to the guy who fills up the gas cans. They all have to pull together in order to win. David said, it's like playing offensive right guard on a football team. Nobody knows who he is except the quarterback. When the team scores a touchdown, the crowd cheers the quarterback, but the quarterback cheers the guard. Exactly. David's analogy is perfect. We all know the driver gives most of the glory, all right? But even the driver will tell you what David has said. Racing is a true team effort, and that's what it takes to win. There was a rumor reported in this issue that Dale Earnhardt was being groomed to replace Dave Marcus by team owner Rod Osterland, and Rod claimed not so in this issue. Rod said, I never met Dale until Charlotte when he drove one of our cars to a second-place finish in the sportsman race. Our intentions were to run a two-car team this year with Roland Wolotica going for rookie honors and Dave for the National Driving Championship. 
at the moment, Dave is my number one driver. Rod, hold that thought. (laughs) It was also reported in this same story that Dewey Livengood had been replaced as the team's crew chief, and that got Dave so angry that he announced that he was quitting the team at Atlanta. And not only did he announce that he was quitting the team in Atlanta, according to Dave in the interview that we did with him a couple of years ago, he basically gave that race away to Richard Petty. That's true about Atlanta, but Dave had been upset with Oslin for quite a while. And not just because of getting rid of Dewey. I think Dave felt on the outside looking in when it came to doing what he wanted with the car and working with the people there at Ostlin Racing. I think he was very fond of Dewey Livingood, no question about that. But overall, the Ostlin team wasn't really Dave's cup of tea. Enter Dell Earnhardt. Hey, race fans, this is Johnny Benson. Hey, everybody, I'm Gil Martin. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham. Hello, I'm Phil Parsons. Hey, I'm David If, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Steve, this episode is going to drop on Wednesday, August 3rd. And today, as we record this on Monday, cars are going to be on the track at North Wilkesboro Speedway today. That is going to be a historic moment, if you ask me. For the last 26 years, I have driven by that racetrack, abandoned, forlorn, completely in disrepair. And it's kind of emotional that cars are going to be back on the track in competition today. Rick, I agree with you. This is, as I said earlier, a historic moment. But there's also something very important here. Fans, if you can get to the races at North Wilkesboro, you need to do that. Because Rick and I have said on this show before, NASCAR is going to be watching. The more people that turn out to support the racing, That strengthens NASCAR's determination to field a NASCAR event again at North Wilkesboro. Show up and pay up and put your money where your mouth and your social media is. (laughs) And you won't regret it. And if you can't, and listen, I understand if you live in Timbuktu somewhere and just simply can't get to North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, you can also stream it on Racing America TV. If you want to see this race 
you can do so. You can be here or you can stream it. Okay, fans, you wanted racing back at North Wilkesboro? You wanted NASCAR back at North Wilkesboro? Now is your chance to prove it. I was really thrilled and impressed to see the performance of your two sons, Andy and Jesse. They were far better than I ever could imagine. You should be real proud of those boys. Adam and Jesse. What's that? Andy. Just say say Andy and Jesse, and I'll plug it back. Adam and Jesse. Okay, say it with a little less emphasis. Uh, Adam and Jesse.